Once again, welcome to Cornerstone this morning. My name is Ben Griffith. I'm one of the pastors here, and especially if you're visiting with us, uh, we're glad that you're here. We'd love to get to know you, uh, and it's good to see you. So we're continuing to make our way through Mark's gospel this morning, and we find ourselves in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. One of the shows that my family loves to watch together is the show Fixer Upper. Um, you may be familiar with it. It's one of those home renovation shows that's based in Waco, Texas, and the stars of the show are Chip and Joanna Gaines. Um, she is a designer, an interior decorator. He's a builder, and what happens in the show is these couples will, will buy a house, a real, a real fixer-upper, uh, and they'll just give the whole project along with a blank check, well, not a blank check, but a, a check to Chip and Joanna, and they'll say, fix this up. I don't want to see it until you're done with it. Um, and so together they come up with a plan of what it's going to look like, and they totally flip the house and transform it into something incredible. So throughout the episode, you're following them as they tear the house apart and put it back together again. And every episode is different because every house is different. But there's one thing that's the same about every episode. And it's not just the island uh, that, that she tends to put in every, in every house, but it's, it's the fact that it's the fact that every episode ends with this big reveal kind of moment, uh, this big before and after climactic, um, dramatic kind of moment. It's the best part of the show. It's what you've been waiting for the whole time. That's why you're watching it. When the project is done, Chip and Joanna, they, they blindfold the couple and they lead them blindly to the project that they haven't seen at all and to lead them up to the house, but they can't see it because there's these big panels, this big screen where what the, used to, what the house used to look like is printed on the, on the screen. So they can't see it. They walk up. All they can see is what the house used to look like. Then there's this big drum roll moment. Chip and Joanna say, are you ready to see your fixer-upper? And they peel the screens back, and there it is, and it's glorious, and it's worth it, it and, it's, and it's so satisfying. We love that kind of moment, Right? But can you, imagine what it would, can you imagine what it would feel like if you've waited for months for Chip and Joanna to transform your house and the moment arrives, they lead you blindly up to the project that you haven't seen and they lead you behind up to the screens and all you can see is what the project used to look like and you're at the edge of your seat. They say, are you ready to see your fixer-upper? And they peel the screens back and and it's only halfway finished. And the roof is not on yet. The appliances aren't installed. The windows are out. And it, they're still bare studs. It's obviously not done yet. Can you imagine what that would feel like? How confusing and jarring that would be when, if it's only halfway done when you're, you're expecting it to be completely done? Something like that happens in our passage this morning. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, Every one of Jesus' miracles has been this dramatic, big before and after, um, big reveal kind of moment where the deaf instantly hear and the lame instantly walk and the storm is, is, is instantly calmed and, and, and so on. But, but something different happens this morning. We're going to watch as Jesus leads a man up to the screen. And he's literally blind. He can't see. And Jesus leads him out of town up to this moment where there's going to be this big reveal moment, this big before and after. And he's 
it's literally going to be, be a big reveal because he can't see. He's going to give him his eyes back. But Jesus sets the stage. The anticipation is up. Jesus says, are you ready to see? And he pushes the screens back, and it doesn't seem to work. He can only see halfway. Something went wrong. For a few moments, if this man was in our church this morning, if he was singing Amazing Grace, he would have to be singing, I was blind, but now I kind of see, sort of. I was blind, but I'm not really sure anymore. Why does Jesus bring this man from complete blindness into partial blindness? And what is he trying to show his disciples, and what is he trying to show us through what appear to be at first, a very disappointing big reveal. Let's read and find out. Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but They look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that in this moment that you would come and give us eyes to see by your Spirit. We trust that you can see us completely, but we need to see that we can't see completely. And so we pray that you would open up the eyes of our hearts because the eyes of our hearts may be looking at anything else but you right now. They may be looking back at this last week. The eyes of our hearts might be looking ahead to this week. The eyes of our hearts might be a million miles away. But, Lord, direct our gaze to you, we pray. And we ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So in the Gospels, when Jesus performs a miracle, it's, it's always him showing us something about who he is and what he's come to do. All of Jesus' miracles, no exceptions. They're all big reveal moments where he's revealing something. He's, he's pulling back the curtains and showing us something about who he is and something about what he's come to do, without exception. Every miracle demonstrates some kind of aspect of his person and work. In John's gospel, John specifically calls his miracles signs because they're things that point out in a way from themselves. The miracle, in other words, is never just about the miracle. There's always something below the surface. There's always something deeper and and profound that Jesus is illustrating and and demonstrating when he performs a miracle. Now, usually these signs, they they function kind of like signs on a a one-way street. They're pointing to one thing, and that's to who he is and what he's come to do. They point in one direction, revealing to us who he is and what his kingdom is like. But, But this miracle here, this sign functions in a in a different way. I want you to see that this is a sign that's actually pointing in two different directions, which is why this miracle is, is so fascinating, because Jesus is doing something different here. This miracle, it is a sign, 
It is pointing at Jesus and revealing who he is, but, but before it's going to do that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to point back at us. It's going to reveal to us something about us. Jesus wants his disciples and he wants to see, and he wants us to see something about who he is, but, but before he can do that, he's got to show us something about what we're like. And so he doesn't just want to reveal something about him. He wants to reveal something about us this morning. So we're going to look at this as a sign pointing in both directions. So first of all, what is this halfway miracle? This initially disappointing big reveal, what, what does it reveal about us? How is it pointing back at us? Well, to begin to answer that, I want you to notice how this episode is situated um, in the overall story, especially how it's connected to the passage that came before it. If you have your Bibles open, you can see it. If you don't, that, that's okay. But um, two weeks ago, we looked at the passage directly above this paragraph. It's the episode where Jesus feeds 4,000 people out in the wilderness, out in, in, the, in Galilee, middle of nowhere. He feeds 4,000 people with bread that came out of nowhere, and it's this, it's this gigantic, enormous, mountain-sized sign that's pointing at who he is and pointing at why, at why he's come and the kingdom that he's come to bring. But here's the thing, nobody sees it. The disciples miss it, and the Pharisees miss it. No one is singing that day, I saw the sign, and it opened up my eyes, I saw the sign. Nobody's singing that that day. They all miss it. That's why Jesus, in that passage, just right before our passage this morning, he's asking these questions. Do you not perceive? Do you not see? He literally says to them, having eyes, are you still not seeing? Do you not yet understand? So those questions should be ringing in our ears as we read this passage this morning because, look, Jesus asked the exact same question to this blind man here. Do you see anything? Same exact question. Um, this episode, then, it's not just a random drive-by miracle. It's deeply connected to the overall story that Mark is telling in his Gospels. Because Mark wants us to see that the disciples don't see. And so immediately after Jesus implies to them that they have eyes but don't see, he records for us this encounter of Jesus with a man who literally has eyes and doesn't see. So we can begin to understand just from its context, just from where it's situated in the gospel, that this episode, this healing miracle, is just as much for the disciples' benefit as it is for this blind man's benefit. Jesus is, he's always doing that, you know. He's always up to more than one thing at a time. He's perfectly capable of, of giving this blind man his undivided attention and meeting him exactly where he needs to be met, and at the same time, giving his disciples his undivided attention and meeting them exactly where they need to be met. He's the perfect multitasker. You and I can't do that, but he can. Then just as an aside, he's always doing that, and he's doing that right now in your life this morning. Um, he's always at work doing more than one thing. He might just be at work doing 100,000 things, and we can only see one or two of them at one time. You see, in this one episode, he's at work comforting a blind man and confronting his disciples, doing two very different things for very different people in one situation. He's that good 
and he's that big, and he's that wise to meet his very different people's very different needs in one circumstance. So anyway, that's what he's doing here. We're going to focus on what he's doing in the lives of the disciples because what he wants them to see is that they're not seeing. He wants his disciples and he wants us to see that when it comes to spiritual blindness, that having partial sight can actually just be a more dangerous version of blindness because you think you're seeing when you're really not. Say that one more time. He wants his disciples and he wants us to see that when it comes to spiritual blindness, having partial sight, being able to see some, might actually be a more dangerous version of complete blindness because you think you're seeing when you're really not. Watch what happens here. Jesus, he leads this blind man by the hand, just like, just like in Fixer Up. He leads him out of the village by the hand. You'd love to know what they were talking about, what kind of conversation Jesus was having with this man. Was he hearing about his story? Was he, was he telling him who he is? What kind of conversation did they have as they walked outside, out of the spotlight, out of the crowd? Jesus is dealing specifically with this man while he's also dealing specifically with his disciples. Takes him outside of the crowd. It, so it's, it's probably just Jesus and the 12 disciples and this man by this point. And Jesus does something that when you think about it, it's, it's a little gross. He leans in, he stops talking for a little bit, and he starts swishing around in his mouth a little bit, gathers up a big mouthful of saliva, leans in close to the man's face and spits on him. That's a little gross. Um, it's especially jarring after a year of quarantine when we've been especially germ conscious, right? Like Jesus is breaking some rules here. Um, that's a little weird. Why does Jesus do that? Well, it may seem gross to us, but we have to realize that there was, there was no better way for Jesus to communicate to this blind man that what's inside of me has to get all over you in order for you to be healed. That wholeness is going to come from me giving you what's inside of me and it getting on you. But that's where restoration is going to come from. Jesus wants this blind man to experience with all five senses what he's doing. He doesn't want the blind man to think that he's just channeling energy and power from somewhere out there. He wants the man to know that he's transferring power from within him to this man. But then something really strange happens. And it's, it's the first time that, that this ever happens. It's the only time in the Gospels that this ever happens. It doesn't work. Um, it doesn't seem to work. We've never had Jesus perform a miracle and say, did that work? Can you see anything? But he asks the man, what do you see? Did that work? Can you see anything? And can you imagine what, like, what, might, what might have been going through the man's, what, what might have been going through his mind, what kind of position he feels himself in, the, and the courage that it would have taken for him to say to Jesus, um, that didn't work. Jesus, I think you did something wrong. I don't think you, I don't think that that worked. There's, something's not right here. I see people, but they look like trees. Now this raises the question, how does a man know what trees and people look like? Um, a lot of people think maybe he was 
Maybe he had lost his, his sight over time. He, had, he, he used to be able to see, but he lost his sight. Probably like a lot of people would have um, experienced that condition back then. Or maybe he just, he just knows enough from feeling his way through life what a person should look like and what a tree should look like. But either way, he looks up, and it's probably the 12 disciples all around uh, by this point, and he says, I know those are people, but they don't look like people. Tolkien's not going to write Lord of the Rings for 2,000 years, but he says, they look like ants. I think that's Peter, but it looks like Treebeard, if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings story at all. If you're not, that's okay. Um, Walking trees. I think that's a person, but it doesn't look like a person. Now, we're going to pause and camp out here for the rest of the time because I don't know it doesn't, it doesn't say, but I can just imagine Jesus when he, when he hears the man say this, that Jesus says, perfect. That's just what my disciples need to hear because I want them to see that that's the way that they're seeing me. He wants his disciples and he wants us to see that when it comes to spiritual blindness, that having partial sight can just be a more dangerous version of complete blindness, because you think you're seeing when you're really not. So you think about this, what do trees and people have in common? If you, if, you, if you put everything that you know about trees in this category here, and everything you know about people in this category here, and you did this kind of Venn diagram thing, there, the thing is there would be some overlap, right? I mean, they're both tall, they're both slender, they're both living things, they both they both have things that come out of the top, you know, branches and arms. They do have some things in common. There is some overlap, but that's, that's about where the similarities end, right? As much as they have in common with each other, there's so much more that they don't have in common with each other. And here's what Jesus is saying. Here's his point. Who you think that I am and what you think my kingdom is like, your, your, your perception of me and your perception of the kingdom that I've come to bring has about as much in common with the real thing as a tree has in common with a person. There's a little bit of overlap. It's not like you're completely blind. You're, you are seeing something. But the real danger would be for you to equate the two and for you to, for you to, to think that you're seeing everything that there is to be seen. The real danger would be for you to think that you're really seeing. In that case, your partial blindness would just be more dangerous than real blindness because you think that you're seeing, but you're really not. You see, can you imagine what would have happened if this man had walked away from Jesus after, after the first moment when Jesus leans in and spits on him and takes his thumbs and wipes him in his eyes like, like windshield wipers? Can you imagine what would have happened for the man to... To, to back away and say, I can see, it's done, thank you, and he skips off. He would have spent the rest of his life having conversations with oak trees, right? He, he would have spent the rest of his life not knowing if he was in the forest or in the supermarket. It would have solved some problems, but it would have, just, but it would have created other problems if the man had thought that he was really seeing everything that there is to be seen when he, when he wasn't. In the same way, it's possible to have so much access and exposure 
to Jesus and to his kingdom and to know a lot of right answers. It's possible to know a lot about him and to be right there with him, either right there in the boat with him or right there in church with him. And to think that you're seeing everything there is to be seen and to be completely missing him. Have you ever looked at one of those magic eye posters, one of those magic eye books? You know what I'm talking about? These are, I think the, these, these really came in like in the mid-1990s. They're these incredibly colorful and complex computer-generated images that on the surface they just look kind of dizzying and random and, and, and chaotic. Um, but if you look at the image the right way, and it takes some time, it takes some practice, you have to kind of cross your eyes a little bit, you have to kind of lean in and, and lean out, you eventually see something that you didn't know was there. You lean in, and, and it's, it's like the picture swallows you up, and it turns into this incredible 3D image that you, it feels like you're becoming a part of. You thought it was just random colors and shapes, but you lean in and you see a landscape or you see a flower or a sailboat or something like that. It's, it's, it's incredible. But you had no idea that it was there until you looked at it the right way. Here's the point. It's possible. It's possible for, for someone to have a magic eye poster up on the wall and for you to walk by it, look at it and say, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty. Very modern, very colorful. I see what the author was trying to do there, or the artist, and, he, and you keep walking, and you have no idea that you didn't see the poster at all. You didn't see what was really there. Jesus is saying that it's possible to think that you've seen him when you actually haven't. It's possible to have partial sight and for that partial sight to really be complete blindness. Now, how is that possible? What does that look like? All right, well, watch this. This is incredible. Um, Mark is going to answer that question in this, in this section that, he, that he's writing. Um, in the next few weeks, we're going to be getting into this section that begins in chapter 8 and ends in chapter 10. It's this kind of self-contained unit in Mark um, that, that is bookended by two episodes of Jesus healing blind people. One here, and then at the end of chapter 10, right before a new section in Mark where Jesus goes into Jerusalem. But this section is bookended by healings of blind people. And, and get this, sandwiched in between there are three what we call passion predictions, where Jesus explicitly, plain as day, tells his disciples, I'm going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. And I'm going to, ha- I'm going to be handed over. This is... This is who I am, and this is how the kingdom is going to come, through suffering and through defeat and through death and through weakness. These are the sections in Mark where he's telling his disciples what what kingdom life looks like, that it looks like denying yourself, and that greatness really looks like being last, and that the way up is really down. He's talking about this upside-down kind of kingdom in plain English. Well, it wasn't English, but really plain and every single time after, after Jesus says that in those, in, the, in those three sections, it's followed every time by the disciples saying, I don't get it. I don't know what you're talking about. Like after the first time, Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him for saying he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. That's where, when Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan, to the same person that had just called him Christ. 
You see me, but you don't know what you're looking at. You see, but you don't see. And then after the second time of when Jesus tells his disciples who he is and how the kingdom's going to come through suffering and his death, the very next few verses, the, the disciples get in this argument about who's going to be the best, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. I think it's going to be me. No, I think it's going to be me. No, I'm better. No, I'm better. They don't get it. They're not seeing. And then the last time, the very next words that we have out of the disciples' mouth after Jesus says, I'm going to die, and this is how the kingdom comes, the very next few words we have out of James and John is them arguing. Well, they're not arguing. They come to Jesus, and they say, when you come in your kingdom, can I be right there next to you so that when people see you, they see us too? Can I ride your coattails into glory and fame and prestige? They don't get it. They're not seeing. You see, they can't see the person that's right in front of them because their hearts are still blinded to the idea of a crucified Savior. That's what's not letting them see. Their hearts can't make sense out of a cross that comes before a crown. They can't get it. It's just too much. The, the Christ that they see and the kingdom that they think that they're a part of has about as much in common with the real thing as a tree has in common with a person because they can't comprehend that suffering and dying and serving is how God's kingdom comes. And that can be true of us too. It can be true of us who see but still don't really see all that's there. It can be see of, this can be true of us who have seen, who's, whose hearts have been opened by the gospel and by the light of the Holy Spirit, we can see for the first time and still remain blind to so much that's really there because we might be thinking that we're seeing and experiencing all that's really there. It can be true of us who have so much exposure to Jesus and so much experience with him to miss him completely because our idea of following him does not include denying ourselves or taking up our cross and following him. We can miss him completely because our idea of greatness doesn't include being last. And because our idea of living doesn't involve dying, dying to ourselves, dying to our agenda, dying to our comforts, dying to, what, to the way that we want the world to go, and as long as that remains the posture of our hearts, we won't be seeing the king and the kingdom that's really there. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes this to the church. He writes this to professing believers whose eyes have been opened. He says, here's my prayer request for you, that, that the eyes of your hearts might be opened. Notice he doesn't say that you might start seeing with your heart. He says that that the eyes of your heart might be opened. In other words, his assumption is you're already seeing with your heart. That's not the question. The question is, are you seeing clearly with your heart? Because you're going to see with your heart either way. It's just a matter of, of if your heart is going to let you see clearly what's really there. You're seeing with your heart right now. The posture of your heart will influence what you see. Paul Tripp says it like this, human beings made in the image of God, we don't live life just based on the facts of our experience, but based on the interpretation of those facts. 
Whether you know it or not, we've been designed by God to be meaning makers. You are a rational human being, even if it doesn't always show it, and you have a constant desire for life to make sense. And so you're constantly thinking and constantly interpreting. You don't actually respond to what's going on around you. You respond to the sense that you've made of what's going on around you. This means that there's always some kind of interpretive grid that you're carrying around with you that helps you to make sense out of life. It's not a matter of if you have an interpretive grid. It's a matter of if your interpretive grid is letting in what really is there. It's kind of like this. Our hearts, we're born with hearts that just have this natural polarized lens on them. You know how polarized lens works. It's, it has this when, when light from the sun comes and reflects off of a surface, there's a lot of light waves that, that bounce off of that surface and are coming at you in horizontal wavelengths like this. But polarized lenses are built with this kind of vertical frame in them or, or something that doesn't let the horizontal light come in. So all of the light waves that are coming in that are horizontal don't get past that vertical grid. So you're actually not seeing everything that's there. That's why polarized lenses are so popular. That's why they work, because they block the glare out. You're not able to see everything that's really there. In the same way, Paul says that we see with the eyes of our hearts. But here's the thing. Our, our hearts, the way that they naturally are, they don't let in everything that, that, that's really there because, because our hearts aren't going to let in what threatens our, our little kingdoms, what threatens our comfort, our hearts are going to block out and push out anything that, that decenters us from being the center of our universe. <laughs> you see this message, deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. Our hearts are going to push back against that every time. It doesn't want to let that in. <laughs> it costs too much. It's too threatening, which means that we're not going to see Jesus for who he really is or experience his kingdom for what it really is. So where is Jesus taking us then? Where is Jesus taking us? What does he want us to see? He wants us to see that we need him and his grace more than we can possibly imagine. Not just for that first moment of coming to salvation, but every moment after that. You are never not in need of Jesus opening up your eyes to see past that grid in, of your heart and to see him as he really is and the kingdom for what it really is. We need him to open up the eyes of our hearts for the first time, yes, and for the 10,000th time and for the 100,000th time. You see, he wants to bring us to the place and he wants to keep us in the place where we're saying like this blind man, Lord, I see, but there's so much that I don't think I'm seeing. Help me to see. He wants to bring us to the place and he wants to keep us in the place where we're saying, Lord, I can see you. I see you and I love you and I, and I see the world around me, but unless you open up my eyes more to who you really are, I'm gonna mistake you for somebody else. I'm gonna mistake you for somebody less than you really are, somebody tamer than you really are, somebody, somebody more like me, somebody more in my image. You see, he wants to keep us at the place where we're saying, 
Jesus, I see you in your kingdom, but you've got to open my eyes again. And then you pray the same thing tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Because if, if he's not continually opening up our eyes, we're going to mistake life in his kingdom as being more about us than about him. You see, he's never interested in bringing you to a place where you need him less. Him opening up your eyes, yes, it's a once and for all kind of thing, and there is a progressive rest of your life aspect to Jesus opening your eyes to see him as he really is, of, of taking away those filters on your heart of pride and, 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 and arrogance and self-centeredness so that the message of who he really is and the kingdom that he's inviting you into can come in. And that's what we see about Jesus here, that he never gets tired ever, of walking with his blind people, taking them by the hand, and leading, through, leading them through life, opening their eyes up to who he really is. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 writes this. Now, this is Paul writing, and he says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I, I shall know fully. But then listen to what he says, even as I have been fully known. He says, this whole time, I know that I'm not seeing everything that is there to be seen. I'm, I'm looking at Jesus, and I'm looking at life in the kingdom, even as much as I know, it, it's still like a mirror. There's still so much I don't know. But he's looking at me, and he sees me, and he knows me fully, and he's leading me by the hand. And so it's more important <laughs> that Jesus is looking at you and seeing everything that there is to know, everything that there is to see, as he walks with you through life, opening up your eyes to more of what there is to know and to see and to love about him. May that be true of us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would open up our eyes it may be that we're here this morning and we need our eyes to be open for the first time to let in those rays of light so that our blindness is overwhelmed and we see spiritually for the first time and grasp you and your beauty and your grace and your mercy. It may be, though, that we need our eyes to be open this morning for the 10,000th time to see again something that we've forgotten to see past our own blindness. And so, Lord, in all of these ways, lead us, we pray. Lead us to you and keep us there. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.